Matthew chapter 5, we are continuing our study through the life of Christ and through this great Sermon on the Mount, and specifically through the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, which, is the, which are the Beatitudes. Now, as you're turning there, I have a piece of fruit in my hand here. I always like to give some sort of silly illustration to try to help the kids get what we're talking about. And I do that for a reason. You guys might think I'm just trying to be creative. But uh, I, I do love the fact that we worship together. The generations converge to enjoy God and change the world and change the world with the gospel. Um, but knowing that we have the kids here, I always try to be mindful of that and do something to, um, uh, to draw their attention to the sermon. So I have a banana here. Now, so I just need to see the only kids that can help me with this illustration are those who love bananas. And I'm not talking about liking bananas. You love bananas. And Kate, you love bananas? Who else loves bananas? All right. And it's your favorite fruit. You'd rather have a banana than a snicker bar. Hands still up? Okay. All right. So would one of those kids with the hands still up, would, would you like this banana this morning? This nice, yummy, ready-to-eat banana. Yes, nobody's ready. Still, Emma Kate, over. Okay, Emma Kate, come, come on up here. I want you to have this. Okay. So here we go. All right, hold on. All right. I told you I'd let you have this. So there you go. All right. Enjoy. <laughs> go ahead. You can eat it. What's wrong? It's what? It's, peel. it's still part of the banana, isn't it? Okay, then eat it. No, that's not what you were craving. You were craving this, right? Funny thing is, and it's amazing that you're my daughter. I can't stand bananas. And the smell of it right now, and knowing it's going to be in my hand for the rest of the sermon, is actually quite disturbing. Okay, this is what you really wanted? Okay? You see, now I'm trying to draw an illustration here, is that in this today's beatitude, we are called to crave after, to hunger and thirst after God's righteousness. But the problem is, I'm afraid many people come, and maybe even people come to the church, and they're craving something else. They're craving something that in the end only ends up being trash. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul talks about all the previous religious things he did, and how those were like trash compared to knowing Christ and having the righteousness that is in Christ. So this is what you really want, right? And those who have truly been made new and who understand this beatitude seek after the righteousness of God, which absolutely satisfies. Unlike that, which will not satisfy you, you can have this, which I know will. So sit down, enjoy that, try not to make a mess, and I need some sort of hand wipe or something, because that stinks. All right. Okay. Matthew chapter... You're bringing me a hand wipe? Thank you. Wow. Man, I knew we have deacons for a reason, baby. Wow. <laughs> That's funny. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned how I got real sweaty in the end of a sermon. I said, I'm becoming a hanky preacher. And wouldn't you know it, Andrea shows up with hankies the next Sunday. So you guys are just filled with the spirit of service here in the church, and it, it makes me excited. Matthew chapter 5, um, we will begin in verse 2 and read through verse 12. And if you haven't found that spot, go ahead and find it. As I said, we are in a sermon series called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, which is a chronological walk 
through the life of Jesus. We're going verse by verse through all four of the Gospels, meaning we are harmonizing the Gospels as we go. And at this point, this juncture in Jesus' life, we are anywhere between 12 or 18 months into his earthly ministry. And this is his second round of extended ministry up in the region of Galilee. He's been preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand and that people need to repent and believe the gospel. And along with the proclamation of the kingdom, there has been a demonstration of the kingdom as Jesus has done miracles, healings, um, and he has demonstrated that the kingdom is indeed in breaking. It's breaking in. Jesus has demonstrated also that he himself is the long-awaited Messiah, but Quite unexpectedly to the Jews, they were expecting the Messiah, but quite unexpectedly to the Jews, Jesus has also been unveiling the truth that he is the Son of the living God, co-equal with his Father. He is claiming to be God. Now, as a result of Jesus' increasingly provocative claims and his increasingly irrefutable demonstrations of divine power, the Jewish leaders have decided to already at this point in his ministry to get rid of him. They want to they get rid of him. They want to bump him off, eliminate him. But the crowds in general are still fascinated with Jesus and continue to swarm around him. But not all the crowds are disciples. Matter of fact, most of the crowds are not disciples. They're fans, but they're not followers. So right now, at this juncture, when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has just selected from his disciples an inner circle of 12 men that he calls apostles. And right after that, right after selecting the apostles, we read that he went up on the mountain and he sat down. His disciples came to him. Now he sat down, meaning that he sat down to teach. And his disciples are the ones who came to him. So there are others in the crowd that are listening in, but this sermon, this sermon on the mount, is aimed at Jesus' followers, at his disciples. So essentially, as I've said before, the Sermon on the Mount... Um, as this discourse is traditionally called, is essentially King Jesus sitting down to teach kingdom citizens about kingdom living. King Jesus teaching kingdom citizens about kingdom living. And as Jesus begins this kingdom manifesto, he begins it with a pronouncement of eight blessings. Blessings that belong to the kingdom citizens. And these are known to us as the Beatitudes. So right now... We're walking through the Beatitudes one at a time, and today we are on the fourth Beatitude. And as I've said earlier, these Beatitudes build on one another, so even parts of today's sermon are going to build upon the previous three sermons. Really the previous four, because there was an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. So if you haven't heard those sermons, I encourage you to go back and listen to those sermons on our website. So I'm going to read all the Beatitudes, though, so we can get how they connect with one another. So please stand, if you would. As we read Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 through 12. Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 through 12. This is the word of the Lord. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. For they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those 
who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to your word, I pray that you would make it come alive in our hearts. Lord, we need you to open up our ears so we can hear it rightly. We need you to open up my mouth so I can speak it rightly. Father, we know that um, we all fail and fail to interpret your word rightly from time to time. We fail to speak it rightly from time to time. But your word itself does not return void. It accomplishes what it has been sent out to do. The grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Thank you, Father. So we pray now that your word would go forth and bring a new hunger and a new thirst for righteousness in each and every one of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What an amazing statement that is. It really is. This beatitude, this fourth beatitude, is in many ways the pinnacle of the beatitudes. It stands at the center, and it sort of marks a turning point in what Jesus is saying here in these beatitudes. I want to quickly remind you of the patterns that are found in these beatitudes that I've pointed out to you in previous sermons. First, there is the pattern of the first beatitude and the eighth beatitude being attached to the same promise. And that promise is, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As I mentioned, that that serves as a bracket to help us see that all the other future promises attached to the other beatitudes are given to those who are under the rule of Christ or who are in the kingdom of heaven. But the second pattern that's going to be more uh, important for us to pay attention to in today's sermon is that pattern I mentioned a couple of times already in our previous sermons, the 3-1-3-1 pattern. What I mean by that is the first three Beatitudes are about being emptied, about us emptying ourselves of ourselves. So they're sort of negative in nature. They're about emptying. And then we have the middle beatitude, the one, the fourth one, which is one we are focusing on today, which is about being filled. Once we are empty, we hunger and we are filled. Then the next three beatitudes reflect the overflow of that filling, the overflow of righteousness. And so those are more positive in nature. So we have three that are kind of negative, emptying. Then we have one about filling. And then we have three about the overflow of that filling. And then we have the last one, which shows how a sinful world reacts to those who are filled with righteousness. How a sinful world reacts, namely with persecution. So this beatitude here today is that one in the middle. It stands as sort of a hinge, if you will, in that pattern. It's very essential, and it naturally and logically flows out of the other three and into the following four. And so the empty man, emptied of himself, is now ready to be filled. So I want us to see three things in today's beatitude, in today's sermon. 
Three things. And I'm going to go ahead and give you all three of them up front. In your notes there, you have point one, point two, point three. In the first part of each one of those points, it says a, a happy blank, a holy blank, a heavenly blank. I'm going to go ahead and give you those blanks, and then we'll fill in the rest of it later. So here's the three things we'll see in today's beatitude. Number one, a happy obsession. Number two, a holy object, meaning the object of that obsession. And number three, a heavenly outcome. A happy obsession, a holy object, and a heavenly outcome. So we begin with this happy obsession. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed. I want to remind you that this could be translated happy. Happy indeed are the hungry. Happy indeed are the thirsty. As we discovered a few weeks back, this happiness is not to be confused with the superficial joviality or glibness that marks what most people think of in our world when you give them the word happy. Instead, it means a deep and profound inward contentedness and pleasure that is not dependent upon our earthly circumstances. It is, I'll remind you, a supernatural work of God, a supernatural happiness born from above that is the fruit of God's transformational work in the heart's of Jesus' followers. So don't import the world's definition, the world's shallow, trivial, uh, flippant definition of happiness, the world's shallow desires for immediate gratification. Don't import that into the word blessed when I compare it, when I say that it also means happy. The happiness Jesus says belongs to his kingdom citizens is the inward joy flowing out of a heart that's been made new. And the heart that has been made new has been given new appetites. The junk food that so easily makes the world happy will no longer do. And it's not just that our appetites have been reoriented. They've been totally awakened. They've been totally transformed. We've been given new hearts with new cravings from above. So, that happy obsession. To finish filling out that blank. A happy obsession is this. Kingdom citizens have a supernatural craving. A supernatural craving. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Hunger and thirst. These verbs here used by our Lord Jesus are are intensive verbs. Speaking of a potent desire, a driving pursuit, a deep, deep longing. The person has been given by God a soul craving that nothing but God can fill. It's hard to understand true hunger in our culture, isn't it? It's hard to understand true hunger and true thirst in a culture where we go to a, a, a faucet and turn on a knob and water comes out. Or we go to a machine and we put in quarters and food drops out. So it's with those type of luxuries, it's, it's really hard for us to Understand how many of the truly impoverished people of our world live day in and day out. We don't know hunger like others know hunger. Rich can testify to that. He's just been in India. Others who have been in third world countries can testify to that. I remember being on the phone just a few years ago with Emmanuel Jones, who is the, um, the director of the orphanage in Liberia that we have done some partnership with in the past. And he was talking about how they provided food for the orphans at the orphanage. But whenever mealtime came, kids from 
around the surrounding villages flocked to the orphanage to eat. And Emmanuel Jones says, well, I'm just going ahead and feeding them. Now, the, the person here in the United States that was actually helping pay for that was saying, well, you can't just keep doing that because we're going to run out of money. We only have enough food for the orphans. And someone else, another pastor was on that conference call, and he says, so, um, so these kids are really hungry then? And Emmanuel Jones kind of chuckled and said, these kids don't know what it feels like to not be hungry. They're always hungry. They're always thirsty. Anyone who's seen true destitution that plagues so many third world countries, when you've seen children digging through trash heaps like we saw in Honduras looking for food, when you've seen people that resemble skeletons sitting on the side of the road using all the strength that remains in them to raise a a hand in hope that a morsel of bread will be given to them, when you see that, you see true hunger and thirst. When we look at being hungry and thirsty in this passage, please don't get in mind the rumbling that your stomach will feel in about 35 minutes. That's not what this passage is about. It's about a desperate need for food and water. In the spiritual realm, friends... Just like in our America, we can't understand poverty and we can't understand true hunger and thirst. We cannot comprehend this beatitude, friends, if we don't get the first three. Remember, the beatitudes are logically tied together and they build on one another. So until one sees his own spiritual poverty, until one sees his spiritual destitution, until one mourns in desperation over his sad state, and until one stretches out his meek hand to God in absolute helplessness, in absolute dependency, in absolute submission to God, he or she does not know the hunger and thirst that Jesus speaks of here Only disciples that have been brought to that point of poverty of spirit, to that point of mourning, and to that point of meekness, understand what it means to truly hunger and thirst for righteousness. The unconverted soul cannot know the spiritual hunger Jesus speaks of here. I believe it's true that the unconverted conscience can be pricked, For God has given them a conscience to bear witness to his truth. And they may feel some hunger pains, if you will. But immediately, the unconverted heart goes after anything other than God. And it finds its fill with anything other than God. And its heart remains restless. The unconverted person's heart remains restless and unsatisfied. Flipping through the channels the other night, came across a couple of the American Idol auditions. And it saddens my soul to hear some of the stories. Some of these kids will tell their story before they get up and sometimes make a fool of themselves. They'll tell their story. Oh, this this is the only thing I want. If I can just become the next American Idol. They're hungering and they're thirsting. For something that will not satisfy them. Just ask the American idols that have already won. And are depressed. And are still hungry. Unbeliever, if there's any unbelievers here in this room this morning, you were not created to eat the junk food of the American dream. 
You were created to feast on God, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Augustine famously said, Thou madest us for thyself, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. But instead of running to God, the human heart, because of its sinful bent toward evil, runs away from God. As Isaiah speaks of in Isaiah 55 verse 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. But the unconverted man acts according to his nature, and thus he continually fills himself with anything other than God. He goes after the banana peel, and he wants the banana peel because he's unconverted. Through our association with safe families, I've become aware of a, of a condition, I guess, called pica, where children will eat stuff that's not food. And if you read up on this, this is some pretty... Strange cases out there. There was one case I read of where they had to pump a woman's stomach and they found like, like $4 worth of quarters in her stomach. She just decided to eat money. And it's a condition that affects people. And it's real. And in reality, the world that's unconverted has spiritual pica. Filling itself with things that's not food. Paul puts it this way in Romans 1, 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here's the deal. The world has exchanged the banana for the banana peel. It has chosen to go after the trash. Instead of seeking what it was truly created to go after. The unconverted soul craves anything other than God. But not so for the one who belongs to the kingdom of God. For he's been made new. He has been given a new appetite. He's been given new cravings and intense cravings. So that he says what the psalmist said in Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Blessed is that man. Happy is that famished man. But what exactly does he crave? It's not enough just to have a craving. We must have our cravings properly directed. Beware, this beatitude doesn't say, blessed is the man who craves happiness, who craves joy, who craves peace. It's not that Those who are part of the kingdom of God will not receive those things. They are the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But they are the fruit. What the man craves should be first and foremost righteousness. Righteousness. And so that brings me to our second point. Okay, A happy object. A happy object. The object... The aim, the focus of our hunger is righteousness. But what is this righteousness? Well, the fact that we are to crave it gives us some hints as to its nature. First of all, it's something outside of us. If we are hungering and thirsting after something, it means that we are conscious of the fact we don't have it in and of ourselves. We don't have what we desire. 
The man who has a cupboard full of good food doesn't sit on the street and beg. The very fact that we are starving for this righteousness is an indication that it has to be sought outside of us and be given to us. So the false gospel that preaches that we must look within and dig deep down and find the God-given potential in each and every one of us is totally foreign to this beatitude. That's what I call junk food gospel, and it'll make you sick. What the kingdom citizen is to seek is something that he in and of himself does not possess. Secondly, we crave what we need. We crave what we need in order to survive, in order to live. If a starving man in the middle of the desert, on the brink of death, crawls up to you, he could care less about the new uh, set of clothing that you want to offer him. He could care less about the wad of crisp dollar bills that you want to offer him. He could care less about the joke you want to tell him to lift his spirits. He wants one thing. He wants food and drink or else he will die. So too spiritually. Righteousness is what the spiritually hungry and spiritually thirsty man desperately needs in order to live. He needs it for life. Without it, he will die. When I was in high school, we had a biology experiment where we were supposed to care for some little animals. I had two little white mice that I was supposed to care for. White mice don't like it when you don't feed them for a week, okay? I had these two little white mice, and um, we left them with someone who was watching our house while we went on vacation. And we came back, and would you believe it? The bars of the little cage that these guys were in were actually bent in one location, and the mice were gone. Okay, we found them weeks later. They were much bigger now because they found food. And they also found their demise. But anyway, they were desperate. They could care less about the spinning wheel that was in their cage at that point. They had to get to food. The thing we hunger for is necessary for life, and we are desperate to get it. Our whole energy is directed at meeting that need because in it is life. So righteousness isn't found inherently in us, but it is desperately needed by us in order to live. So righteousness, friends, becomes the fundamental spiritual craving of the believer. His spiritual life depends on it. But what is this righteousness? Well, righteousness in the Scriptures is a very deep concept. Matter of fact, if you had to pick one word, and only one word, if I came up to you and said, I want you to pick one word, and you only get one word, to summarize the gospel, what would it be? I think it would be this word right here. Righteousness. Righteousness. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So what is it? Righteousness is the very fabric of God himself. It is who he is. Righteousness is the polar opposite of sin. It is his holiness. It is his perfections. It is his very character. And so that's what I wanted to bring up. Here is our happy object. Number two, our holy object. Kingdom citizens have a supernatural craving for God's character. A supernatural craving for God's character. 
Righteousness is indeed the character of God. It is his perfect and holy nature. It is his glory. And we were created to reflect and image that glory. But we've fallen short of it, haven't we, because of our sin. We were created for righteousness. But sin, which is the polar opposite of righteousness, has ruined us. It has bankrupted us. And we are in desperate need of restoration. So the man who has been awakened to his spiritual condition can't help but hunger for that restoration. He can't help for hungering for once again being able to image God rightly. So he hungers for what? He hungers for righteousness. He hungers for the character of God. He craves it. Now when you see the word righteousness in Scripture, it is used in various different ways uh, when it's referring to men and men being righteous. So I want to go over that real quickly and I want to try to zero in on what Jesus is trying to communicate in this beatitude. First of all, the Bible sometimes uses righteousness in reference to legal righteousness, meaning the perfect reflection of God's character that God requires for anyone to be admitted into his presence. This is positional righteousness of a believer. So once someone comes to Christ and is a believer, they are positionally, before God, declared righteous. This is the positional righteousness of a believer that is his by faith through the work of Christ because Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us, and therefore we are justified before God. So there's some key words there. Positional righteousness, legal righteousness, imputed, justified. So this is the righteousness that results in our justification, whereby we are positionally righteous, seen as perfect and holy before God. It's what Paul spoke of in Philippians 3, when he expressed his great desire to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That is the righteousness of Christ counted to us, imputed to us by faith. But then, secondly, oftentimes righteousness is used to refer to moral righteousness. So you have legal righteousness and you have moral righteousness, meaning the right actions or the right conduct that is expected from God's people as a reflection of God's character. These are the right deeds that flow out of a heart that's been declared right before God. So this is not positional righteousness. This is practical righteousness of a believer. That is his by faith through the work of Christ because his righteousness, Christ's righteousness, has been implanted in us. So this is an imputed righteousness. It's implanted righteousness. And therefore, by it, we are sanctified as we journey toward God. So this is implanted righteousness resulting in sanctification. The other one is imputed righteousness resulting in justification. And so we progressively move toward God and move towards righteousness every day of our life. And I must say that this moral righteousness, friends, flows out of the legal righteousness. Our sanctification flows out, but is distinct from our justification. But both are necessary. Both are necessary. 1 John 3, 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And then thirdly, there is social righteousness, meaning the social ills of the world being set right because the character of God is made manifest in the world. So what we talked about this morning, we prayed for, for the Lord to bring his righteousness in our nation and to eradicate the social ill of abortion. 
The poor are cared for, the weak are defended, the fatherless are protected, and so on. This is social righteousness. Isaiah speaks of it in Isaiah 26, 9, which we read earlier. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. And although the people of God work toward this end, this social righteousness will not be fully realized until all things are made new. Which is what we, what we read of in 2 Peter three thirteen, That we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So what does Jesus have in mind here then in this beatitude when he says that we are to hunger and thirst for righteousness? And I think too much ink has been spilt by theologians and, and uh, different um, experts trying to explain which one it is that Jesus means. Because to me, these are so critically interconnected you can't separate them. It's so critically connected we cannot dare split them or parse them. Certainly from the context, friends, it seems that Jesus has the moral aspect of righteousness mainly in focus here. Why do I say that? Well, I want to bring us back to the 3131 pattern. And I want to say something that I haven't shown to you yet about this, this pattern. Okay? The two ones, the three, one, and three, one, the two ones in that pattern, which are beatitude number four and beatitude number eight, are both about righteousness. Right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that's today, for they shall be satisfied. And then then in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted, what? For righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So here it is, we are to be emptied and then filled with righteousness, which results in right living, moral righteousness, if you will. And here Jesus sums that up with mercy, purity, and peacemaking. Those are how Jesus sums up righteousness in the next three Beatitudes. And when the world sees the character of God on display in us through mercy, purity, and peacemaking, and when the world sees that, and because the world is at enmity with God, the world persecutes us, and we are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So the main thrust of Jesus' words seem to be toward the moral definition of righteousness, the implanted righteousness that results in our sanctification. But as I said earlier, I hate to try to split righteousness apart as if moral righteousness were something totally distinct from legal righteousness. As if implanted righteousness were possible without imputed righteousness. Or as if our sanctification were somehow to be accomplished apart from our justification. Friends, there is much danger, I believe, in confusing sanctification and justification. But there's equal danger in dividing them and making them so distinct from one another that we somehow think they stand on their own. Those who have been made right with God hunger and thirst for the character of God. Quite simply. Those who were made right when the righteousness of God was credited to their account through Christ Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so that now, as Paul says, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So those who have been declared righteous now have been given new appetites to crave righteousness. They want, they crave to be like their father. They want to speak like him. They want to behave like him. They want to think like him. Why? Because not only has the righteousness of Christ been imputed to them, it's been implanted in them. And thus it drives us toward holiness. Like a little boy who puts marks on the wall to measure his height. And he looks forward to the day that he'll be as tall as his dad. 
And then he becomes a teenager, and it seems like every day he's coming up to you and goes, I'm taller than you today, all right? Like the young man who wants to somehow get to that point is the man who hunger and thirsts for righteousness. I want to be like my father. So he looks back at his spiritual life and he asks, am I growing? Am I growing? Am I growing? If I'm not growing, it's because I'm not eating. I'm not hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Those who have been made new have been given righteous clothing. Our filthy rags have been discarded and they We've now been robed in Jesus' own righteousness. And so we now have a new nature, and we act according to our new nature. And therefore, we no longer crave the, the swine's husks that the world offers. And instead, we run to the Father and eat and drink His righteousness. And so we hate sin, and we hate the sin that remains in us. Why? Because it makes us unlike God. Why do we hate the sin that is in us? Not because it messes up our life. We hate the sin that's in us because it makes us unlike our Father. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all what? Unrighteousness. That's what sin does that remains in us. It makes us unlike our Father and therefore we hate it because we want our Father to be glorified. We want to shine for Him. We want to demonstrate His character to the world. We want them to see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. If you come and you repent over sin simply because you're upset that it screwed up your relationships, friends, that's not enough. It's not enough. The man who is truly poor in spirit is poor in spirit because... He no longer reflects his father. That's what drives him. So that's why we fight for righteousness. A man who has no desire to fight for his righteousness, who doesn't hunger and thirst after it, what evidence is there that he's been made new? He's still imaging the world. Because the world wants the banana peel. Paul says in Ephesians 4.22, Put off your old self which belongs to your former way of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He commands us in Romans 6, Paul does, to not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Do you see, especially there in Romans 6, how imputed righteousness is so tied to that imparted righteousness? Justification to sanctification. Why do we go on and pursue holiness it's because we have been brought from death to life. Quite simple. And though this is a command, friends, it's not merely something we muster up in our strength. For he has put his spirit in us as a guarantee so that we work hard. But we work hard not in our own strength. We work because the grace of God is at work in us. And so now those who are truly righteous before God legally are also righteous practically in everyday life. 1 John 2, 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. 
So pr- the practice of righteousness becomes our insatiable hunger. We want to be righteous. And those who are declared positionally righteous, who now practice practical righteousness, are also at work in our world to fight for social righteousness. That's why I say all three of them are tied together. Only those who have received legal righteousness, who now have that personal moral righteousness, can truly seek the social righteousness that glorifies God. Kingdom citizens seek righteousness in all of its representations. I think Spurgeon agrees with me here. He wrote these words about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He says they are those who, quote, pine to be right themselves both with God and man. So that's legal righteousness with God and man. That is that moral righteousness. And they long to see, this is still Spurgeon, righteousness have the upper hand all over the world. All over the world. So the kingdom citizens hunger and thirst for God's righteousness in every shape and form. Every shape and form. It starts with a deep desire to be free from the power of sin by being justified before God. And it continues with a deep desire to be free from the pollution of sin by being sanctified for God. Once he is filled with the imputed righteousness of Christ, he then overflows with the implanted righteousness of Christ. I think that's what Jesus means in John 7, 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So you come to Jesus, and then that living water flows out of you to others. The one who is drunk from the justifying well of Jesus Christ's righteousness then becomes a spring out of which sanctifying righteousness flows. And we, friends, must see that both imputed righteousness and implanted righteousness, justifying righteousness and sanctifying righteousness, or if you want to put it this way, positional and practical, legal and moral, both are from God. We can take credit for neither. So even though Jesus seems to focus primarily here on the practical righteousness that sanctifies, he says in Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and whose righteousness? His righteousness. That is why the beatitude in this text, although we don't see it in our English translations, it actually has the definite article before the word righteousness. So it could be translated, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for the righteousness. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So we press on, we seek because and only because he has justified us and he is sanctifying us for his own glory. Righteousness is all about the character of God. As I've already said, thus true righteousness is aimed solely at the glory of God. The human heart is turned from itself and aimed at God when it is hungry and thirsting for righteousness like Jesus tells us to in this verse. Like a mirror reflecting his character for his glory. Men are to see our righteous deeds and give glory to our Father in heaven. Now there is a false righteousness. The righteousness that many of the Jewish leaders had. A righteousness aimed at the glory of man. But the righteousness God requires is generated by him. It is sustained by him. And it is aimed at him, from him, through him, and to him. If the human heart has truly been justified... Then it is put right so that it is aimed at God like a mirror. 
And it can't help but reflect his character and his righteousness. And in doing so, everyone sees our righteous deeds and gives glory not to us, but to our Father who's in heaven. So kingdom citizens crave God's glory. Righteousness is God's character, God's glory on display. Kingdom citizens long to be holy as he is holy for his glory. And when they have that longing, they have that craving, they know from the promises of this verse that it will be satisfied. So here's number three in your notes. A heavenly outcome. A heavenly outcome. Kingdom citizens have a supernatural craving for God's character and are gratified with endless fillings. I realize the blanks are in the wrong spot on that, so you can correct it. You can try to figure out what what words are missing there. I'll say it again. Kingdom citizens have a supernatural craving for God's character and are gratified with endless filling. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This word satisfied was originally used in in its original form in the Greek, to refer to fattening animals that were in the stall. Now it was used in the scripture oftentimes to refer to being stuffed or being filled, uh, being overflowing, being supplied to abundance. It's how the people were at the feeding of the 5,000. They were filled. So this is a great promise given to kingdom citizens. We will be stuffed to the gills and it'll be good. And get this, we will want more. So last night, I'm preparing my sermon and this amazing smell is coming from the kitchen. And my daughter has made snickerdoodle cookies. Oh. Oh, it smells so good. And I begin to hunger and thirst because a snickerdoodle cookie is best with a hot cup of coffee. Oh. And so I went to the kitchen and got a hot, hot cup of coffee. And my wife doesn't know this. I grabbed a snickerdoodle cookie. And I sat down. And I was satisfied. Oh, it was good. Just to sit there and eat that cookie and drink that coffee. Oh, it was good. And I enjoyed it. There was great pleasure in it. I was satisfied. Then about 15 minutes later, I wanted more. And I will say, I did not go get more. But I wanted it. I wanted more. And that's what it's like. We're satisfied with God's righteousness, but we want more and more because you know what? His character is infinite in nature. And so we'll keep wanting it, and we'll keep wanting it, and we'll keep wanting it, and we'll keep being satisfied, and we'll keep being satisfied, and we'll keep being satisfied. And guess what? This will flow into eternity. It's a wonderful thing. The verbs hunger and thirst here, like all of those in the other Beatitudes, are a continuous action. We are to keep hungering and keep thirsting. So we keep longing for holiness. We keep longing for righteousness. We keep craving for God himself. We crave his character to be made manifest in us. We long and we long and we long and we grow in satisfaction as we grow in sanctification. We grow in satisfaction as we grow in sanctification. And we'll be satisfied more and more and more. But we will long more and more and more. And then one day we will see him and we will be like him for we will be with him. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Oh, friends, on that day of his glory, of his holiness, where his nature and his character is put on full display, we will bask in that 
We will bask in that reality and we will enjoy it and we will be satisfied. But friends, as I said a minute ago, God's glory, God's character, God's nature knows no bounds. It cannot be contained in a moment of time or even in a million moments of time. It will continue to be revealed to us forever and ever for all eternity. And we will be in a state of perpetual filling, everlasting satisfaction, satisfied yet longing for more and more and more. 1 Corinthians 2.9, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Oh, those snickerdoodles were good. Oh, it's going to be much better. <laughs> Infinitely better. Why will we be satisfied? Because we will be in the presence of the fullness of righteousness. And we will be righteous. We'll no longer be battling sin. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let me conclude here. Do you want to be famished for righteousness? I hope so. I hope you leave here today wanting to hunger and thirst for righteousness. You want that. Where do you go to stoke this hunger? 2 Peter 1.3 says that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world. How do you stoke your hunger for righteousness? Be in this book. And the one who has truly tasted the righteousness of God hungers for God's word. And so he says with the psalmist in Psalm 119.20, My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. And then we'll be like Jeremiah in Jeremiah 15.16, who said, Your words were found and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Only those who are called by his name, only true Christians, only believers crave the word. We should crave the words like, like a baby craves milk. Again, the Apostle Peter, referring to the word of God, says in 1 Peter 2, 2, Like newborn infants, we should long for pure spiritual milk, that by it we may grow up into salvation. If, indeed, we have tasted that the Lord is good. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? If you crave him, his righteousness, his character, you will inevitably crave his word. If you come here and you say, oh, I crave righteousness. I want to be holy like he's holy. And you tell me you don't read this book. I don't believe you. Because here's how we become righteous and sanctified is we spend time in this book. We want it. You got to have it like a baby has to have. Milk. So we learn as we grow in our relationship with the Lord. We learn what the Israelites didn't learn. That man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The people craved the manna. God gave them the manna so they wouldn't crave the manna. He gave them the manna so they would crave him. I'm afraid that in the church we crave happiness, joy. We crave 
better parenting skills. We crave better marriages. We crave better handle on our finances. We come to church thinking we want to get solutions for that. We haven't come craving for righteousness. We haven't learned to go to God alone and see how when we crave his character, his nature, how he begins to rework those things in our life. I conclude with this word. To believers this morning, I ask you simply, are you craving righteousness? You should. If you are truly saved, you should be craving righteousness. I don't want you to be like the people of Jeremiah 2.13 where, Jeremiah, where God says through Jeremiah, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. They have hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. We must repent of our wayward appetites. We must refuse to go along with a cultural Christianity, a pop evangelicalism that takes us to the vending machine of junk food spirituality and say with David in Psalm 17, 15, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. And to unbelievers here this morning, if you're not a Christian... I urge you simply with the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do not work for the food that perishes. But for the food that endures to eternal life. Which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And I invite you with the words of Isaiah. Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why without money? Why without price? Because the price has been paid by Christ. And I give you the promise from the words of an unknown psalmist. Psalm 107.9 For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Please bow your heads as we pray. Heavenly Father, I'm reminded of an old song from the early 90s. It just sort of repeated this phrase, holiness, holiness, holiness is what I long for. Holiness is what I need. Righteousness, righteousness, righteousness. Righteousness is what I long for. Righteousness is what I need. Father, I don't know what people have come into this room thinking they need. But whether they are a believer or whether they are an unbeliever, they both need righteousness. They need righteousness. The unbeliever, Father, needs the righteousness of your son Jesus to be imputed to them. So that they no longer stand condemned. They don't have the right standing before you because of their sin. They need another's goodness, another's righteousness, another's perfection to be credited to their account. They need the righteousness that comes from you alone, God, through Christ. And they need to embrace it by faith. And for the believers in here this morning, we need Christ's righteousness to continue to do a work in us. Because we are not sanctified by our own power, by our own strength. We work hard because you are at work in us. And so we ask you, Lord, to continue to do a work of righteousness in us. Make us holy as you are holy. Don't let us blow off those words of our Lord that we are to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. He was not joking. Father, help us to see that without holiness, no one will see God. 
And then let us stand in fear as we look at, think about Hebrews 6, 5, Father, where you said that there are some who have tasted, tasted the glories of what it means to be a part of your people, yet they fall away. That is a frightening verse, Lord. It's a frightening verse. Those who are truly yours will persevere to the end. That means they will continue to be hungry and continue to be satisfied. Oh, Lord, I fear for the soul in this room that is satisfied because he prayed a prayer and walked an aisle when he was at VBS as a kid and hasn't changed much since then. And he sits there satisfied with that. Oh, God, strike that down. The one who truly belongs to you is the one who is progressively being made like you. So, Father, we pray that you do a work in all of our hearts, a work of righteousness. Stoke up our hunger. Oh, Lord, we enjoy your good gifts. We enjoy the the physical pleasures you give us. Family, food, football, whatever it might be. We enjoy these things. But Father, don't let us make these enjoyments replacements. Don't let them become what we crave. So if we have to choose, we choose those things instead of you. Oh Lord, don't let us be those people. Stir up a holiness in this church. Stir up a holiness in my life and in my family. We ask this. We desperately need this. And so we ask it in the name of our Lord and our Savior, the one who can make it happen, the one who is making it happen, Jesus Christ. Amen.